1 Corinthians chapter 3 will begin in verse 5. And as you turn there, where did that song come from? Anybody? Yes. Lord's Day 1, Heidelberg Catechism. That was the question I flubbed when we were having the town meeting. <laughs> and you were considering me to be the pastor. Um, it's a song that fits the theme of 1 Corinthians, because that has been a continuing theme in 1 Corinthians. The fact that we are not our own, but belong body and soul to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. That song also happens to have been written by somebody who lives here in Guelph. Um, that fellow, ben, uh, Jeremy, Jeremy Benjamin Zael, is uh, one of the worship pastors in one of the CRC churches here. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, up to chapter 4, verse 17. Now, on Monday, I had the privilege of attending the funeral for Mary Fisher's mom. And as we reflected on a life that had impacted a great many people, the question arose in my mind. I wonder what people would say at my funeral. And there is a variation of that question for churches, actually. And it is this. If our church were to close down, how would it affect the neighborhood? And it is a valid and valuable question for us to ask as we are coming back from our vacations, we're getting back into the flow of things, thinking of kickoff Sunday, and as we see God's purposes for the future. And so I'd like us to consider that question in light of Paul's teaching on ministry shaped by the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's read from chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, to chapter 4, verse 17. What... After all, is Apollos. And pff, what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives... The builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, 
even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight, as it is written. He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. And you are of Christ. And Christ is of God. This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, Do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've begun to reign and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church.
This is the word of the Lord. Now, Paul concludes his, his addressing of the faulty allegiances of the Corinthians. If you recall, the Corinthians were seeking status by affiliating themselves with particular teachers. Just as we would seek status by becoming Leafs fans, although I don't know how that works. Or Habs fans, or Raptors fans. And Paul is saying, look, going back to chapter 3, verse 5, you're being foolish to use Paul and Apollos in your competition for status because Paul and Apollos are just servants. Verse 5, what after all is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. They have been given specific tasks by God, as it says, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. And the term servant in this context connotes unskilled, despised manual labors. And that's why Paul says, we are only servants. We're not even skilled labor. We're the guys who pick the fruit, because that's all we could do. Because he wants them to recognize that the focus of their allegiance ought to be God. That's why he says in verse 6, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. He's using the image of a field to demonstrate that Paul and Apollos were working together. They were doing the tasks that God had assigned them, and their efforts were not in competition with each other. They weren't trying to outshine each other. They were actually complementing each other. And by the way, I'm, I am so grateful that coming to Crestwick, I don't have to deal with um, members of the church comparing me and Steve or Stan because you understand what verse 9 says, we are co-workers belonging to God. And by the way, that is the correct rendering, and that's why I chose to, re to use the NIV 2011 in my preaching today. Um, I usually go between ESV and NIV 2011, depending on who has the better translation. Um, this is the proper rendering. We are co-workers in God's service. We belong to God. We are fulfilling different roles in the continuing development of the church. And I have to say, I, I was really intimidated coming here. But the comfort of belonging to God means that you don't have to measure up to, the, to your predecessor. You recognize that you are God's servant. God put you there for a specific time, because his purposes require somebody like you. And your weakness that you recognize is actually great, because that is the way God makes his power known as we rely on him. The bottom line of it, as Paul is saying, is it is God who grows the church. And thankfully, I'm not on my own. Paul shifts in verse 10 the metaphor from a field 
to the familiar image of a construction project. And during those days, building a temple would take several generations. And it is meant that image that he is using of a building project is meant to highlight the communal and cooperative nature of ministry, as well as the centrality of Christ. Verse 10, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder or master builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the foundation that gives us stability and identity. And within this context, the elders have the primary responsibility for the building of the church, and I, as your lead pastor, bear a lot of the task because I am responsible to teach. But I think implicit in this Paul wants the Corinthian believers to understand that they are part of God's work in building the church. They all have roles to play. And whatever role you and I have to play, we need to make sure that we are working according to God's purposes and specifications. That's why he says we should build with care. And then he starts talking about gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. And if you read that within the context of 1 Corinthians, what he's been talking about, what Paul is saying is we need to be building with the wisdom of the cross. That the gospel of Jesus Christ must be the center of our ministry. And Christ crucified must be the message. Christ crucified must shape everything we do. In our day, Mark Deaver and Jamie Dunlop note that it is very easy to become a gospel plus church. That means that you proclaim Jesus, but unconsciously embrace something as your defining identity. The church I used to pastor embraced ethnicity as its defining identity. Some churches would make a worship style or a political stance or a version of the Bible or a ministry approach or, unfortunately, even reform theology as a defining identity. And before you stone me, I love reformed theology. I believe that it is the most biblically faithful, comprehensive, and coherent account of the gospel of Jesus Christ. My concern is this. If we simply wear being reformed as a badge to advertise our intellectual depth, appreciation for historical orthodoxy, and theological precision, then we're acting just like the Corinthians, aren't we? Status-seeking snobs who are insecure. Let's understand. The profoundly Christ-centered gospel clarity that is enabled by Reformed theology needs to permeate our psyche so that it transforms our attitudes and our desires. So that the message of Christ crucified would transform us. And we live out the implications of that self-giving love of our Savior. 
so that we become a humble, self-giving community that adorns the gospel we proclaim to the people around us. That's the work that Paul says would survive the fire of God's judgment. And mind you, we're not talking about individual lives as if we're, Paul is saying, you're building your life on Jesus and then when judgment day comes, you're going to be judged. That is true, but that is not the force of this passage. He's talking about the task of building a church community. The fact that God is evaluating the kind of church we are building together. And it is a very serious task because look at what we're building. Verse 16. Paul says, don't you know? You yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. Now, you know, growing up in church, this has always been something that I took for granted. But if you were a Corinthian believer... Living in the city of Corinth where the temples were humongous, impressive, expensively decorated structures, you would have been shocked. Because they were a motley group of Christians meeting in homes. And yet, Paul says, don't you know, you are God's temple. You are the true temple. You look at the temple of Diana, gorgeous, filled with expensive decorations. It's nothing compared to the temple of the true and living God. And what made it special wasn't the quality of the decorations. It wasn't even the quality of the people attending. What made it special was the presence of God's Spirit. And it's the same reality for you and me. We are God's alternative to the pagan temples in our midst. And what makes us distinctive is the presence of our God. The reality that we celebrate every Sunday is that God has purchased us by the sacrificial death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus. So that we might be the dwelling place of God by His Spirit. And that means we need to be a city on a hill demonstrating the beauty of the purposes of God by the way we relate to one another. Our life together needs to be a compelling witness that says here is the beauty of God's plans for humanity. With great privilege comes great responsibility. And so Paul issues a stern warning. If you destroy God's temple, verse 17, God will destroy you. And he says that because the Corinthian believers were damaging the church by their divisiveness. And later on in chapter 5 and 6, by their immoral behavior. And that's a challenge for all of us. We need to hold one another accountable to foster the church's growth in love and godliness. And to that end, verse 18 onwards, we need to embrace the upside-down wisdom of the cross. 
Because the Corinthian believers were applying unbiblical human standards in evaluating their leaders. And Paul's point here is, you're being silly because you are depriving yourselves of the blessings of God. They were saying, I, I belong to Apollos. I belong to Paul. I belong to Peter. Paul says, you don't belong to leaders. The leaders belong to you. Look at verse um, 21. No more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. You don't belong to them. They belong to you. They are given for your good. They're gifts for your benefit. The problem of the Corinthian believers was they'd forgotten. They belonged to God. And so they were trying to secure their identity and worth by their own efforts. And that left them insecure and enslaved. So again, Paul reminds them, you don't bear the responsibility of self-belonging. He wanted them to know the security of comfort of being in the hands of our sovereign Lord. In Christ, they had everything they needed. Then D.A. Carson points out the five things that follow Paul or Apollos or Cephas, referring to the world or life or death or the present or the future, represent the fundamental tyrannies of human life, the things that enslave us, the things that hold us in bondage. The world demands so much of our attention and allegiance that we seldom devote thought and passion to the world to come. Similarly, this present life clamors to be treated as if it were worthy of ultimate respect. We know that, right? In the hustle and bustle of life, it's so easy to lose perspective. And at the end of this life, there's only death which hovers over us, the ultimate specter. Thus, the constant urgency of the present and the vague promises and threats of the future combine to divert our attention away from the God who holds both the present and the future in his hands. As we sang a while ago, because we are not our own but belong to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ, we don't need to be afraid of anything. Our God is in control. Even when we don't know what's going on, even when we are filled with doubts and fears, God is still in control. And belonging to God then frees us to serve His purposes regardless of the cost. And, you know, I, I have to say, I, I had to learn this reality the hard way. Growing up, I tied my identity to academic success and accomplishment. But it left me very driven and very insecure. I was always afraid that I would fail and be exposed as being less than the image that I had carefully built up. But God in His goodness actually allowed me to fall on my face multiple times because I'm very slow to learn. But his goal is to teach me this truth that is so well expressed by Paul Tripp. Only the gospel can free me from the fear of not being found worthy. The fact of the matter is that I am unworthy. 
I could never do or say anything that would make me worthy of my father's acceptance and affection. I could never be so perfectly obedient as to earn his approval. I am not in ministry because by my own effort, I became a shining example of all that the gospel can produce. I have been freed from the bondage of convincing myself and others that I am worthy. I don't need to privately argue for my worth or do things in public to prove it. Jesus perfectly measured up. He was perfectly worthy on my behalf. He accomplished what was impossible for me to accomplish so that I would be given standing that I did not or could never earn. I don't have to live as if I'm still on probation, still being evaluated. I have been accepted and I've been called into ministry. I have earned neither. Both are gifts of grace. Brethren, this is the freedom of belonging to God. Whatever your job is, wherever you are, you don't need to validate your worth by your own efforts. That's the beauty of the gospel because it confronts us with the reality that we are not worthy and we will never be worthy. But it also assures us God loves us anyway. It is in Christ that we stand accepted. And that unconditional, unfailing love is what motivates us to faithful stewardship. And that's where Paul goes in chapter 4, verse 1 up to verse 5. He now begins to explain, okay, Apollos and I are just servants, unskilled labor, the peons. And we are accountable to God. And he wants to remind them, human judgments, even our own, do not ultimately matter because they are limited. That's why he says, look at verse 5. Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. See, we can't see the full impact of our actions. Neither are we fully aware of the motives behind our actions, much less those of other people. So any assessments we make will always be provisional. Now, let's be clear. We need to evaluate our strategies and plan as wisely as we could. But there must be an inherent humility in our assessment. Because we don't know the full story and only God's verdict matters. He alone has the comprehensive knowledge of our innermost motives and he alone knows how he is using what we've done to accomplish his purposes for his glory. Even when we've failed. Even when we've succeeded. But here's the amazing thing. Judgment may be a scary thing, but look at verse five, how verse 5 closes. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Isn't that amazing? That God already guarantees that as you serve Him, He will praise you. It's not about the results. And that really is what frees us to serve God sacrificially. 
and take risks in obedience to Him. The grace of God expressed here is not complacent. Rather, grace fuels our fervor. We don't bear the burden of producing results. Certainly, we would use our God-given intellects. We align our strategies to the standards of Scripture. We ask the Spirit to guide us. Like Paul, we take the effort to understand the culture around us so that we can communicate the gospel meaningfully. Our goal is to see the, the, the gospel advance in Guelph. But we cannot measure success or failure definitively in our time, in our day. Um, Matt Durkee has just come back from Bolivia where he met with a group of churches that had been accidentally planted by missionaries from New Tribes Mission. These missionaries had gone to Bolivia to reach unreached tribes, and they had worked with Bolivian nationals. Their focus was on the, the tribes people. But by the time the missionaries had left, the Bolivian nationals had coalesced into a group of churches that is even now reaching out to other unreached tribes. What's my point? We don't know how God will use our feeble efforts to advance His purposes. All we are called to be, look at verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2, is faithful. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Faithful to proclaim the gospel of the crucified Savior. Faithful to show its compelling beauty through our life together by the power of the Spirit. The results are in the hands of God. Paul then, in verse 7, calls us to humble stewardship of our gifts, our opportunities, and our abilities. Because everything we have is a gift from God's gracious hand. And because we belong to God, we need to be ready to serve sacrificially. So Paul, in the succeeding section, verse 8 to verse 13, is using a great deal of sarcasm and irony. I love it. But I have to be very nuanced in the way I use it. Paul is taking them behind the woodshed. Because he is subverting their boasting in their status and their prosperity. And his goal is to show them that true ministry is patterned after a suffering Savior. That's why he compares himself to them. And says, look, we're, we're beaten. We're the scum of the earth. We're the offscoring of the world. It's... It's the language of, um, you, you know when you get something caught on your shoes, like chewing gum or dog do? That's what he's talking about. That's the stuff you don't, you scrape them off your shoe. <laughs> That's them. That's us. <laughs> Paul is not, as it says in verse 14, he's not trying to shame them or manipulate them. He is speaking as a father seeking their good, challenging them to follow his example in following Christ. 
That's why he describes it as my way of life in Christ Jesus. Verse 17. He is calling them to learn to look at life through the lens of a crucified Savior. And as they learn to evaluate life from the lens of a crucified Savior, they will actually experience human life the way God designed it to be. It's what we and everyone else would long for deep within our soul. As Stephen Um would write, the biblical approach to evaluation is attractive because it appeals to the more human parts of us. It is more human to die to oneself, to give for the needs of others, and to make sacrifices. Where there is humility and deference, where there is praising of others rather than stripping down and attacking others, then the upside-down nature of the gospel is trumping and moving the human heart. There is always greater appreciation for the humble over the arrogant, and this is evidence of our longing for the upside-down. Why is it that this different approach to evaluation is what we long for, and why is it that even though it is our default longing, It is never our default posture. Paul is pointing us to the fact that the universe itself is cruciform at its core. I think we all know the reason why we long for the upside-down wisdom of the cross is that we see its beauty, but our default is opposite because, well, we're still sinners. But as redeemed sinners, we have the mind of Christ. And so we need to think upside down wisdom of the cross. Because if we want to minister to the city, then we need to proclaim and embody the upside down wisdom of the cross by proclaiming a crucified Savior with self-giving, humility, and grace. We sacrifice our rights and privileges to seek the good of the people around us so that they would glorify our Father who is in heaven. That's why I appreciate SNPs, the way they help the kids who are coming out of foster care, why we're joining safe families so that we can minister to families in crisis, And why we're thinking about how our small groups can actually be involved in reaching out to the communities where we are placed so that we can serve them and show them the beauty of the gospel in our life together. And I know we may be mocked. We may be marginalized. It's not a problem. Because God's spirit dwells with us. He empowers us to be faithful to the gospel. And Paul's whole, Paul, Paul's whole point is that we shouldn't worry about people's opinions or assessments because the results are up to God. And he has chosen the foolish things of the world, the weak things of the world, so that he may confound the wise. So let our weakness be the canvas on which God portrays his glorious power. And as stewards of the gospel called to be faithful, 
Let us persevere regardless of the cost because we seek the praise that comes from God, not in the present, but on the last day. And we're confident because God himself promises his commendation. After all, as Tim Keller would put it, Jesus is the only boss who will not drive you into the ground. The only audience that does not need your best performance in order to be satisfied with you. Why is it? Because his work for you is finished. Let us pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the privilege of serving you. Thank you for the privilege of belonging to you. Thank you for the privilege of knowing that you have all things in hand so that we need not fear anything. That even our weakness, our failures, are sovereignly under your control. And that you accomplish good even out of our failures. And we need not look further than the cross of Jesus Christ, where the greatest evil took place. The Son of God, who fully pleased the Father, was condemned as a blasphemer and rebel when he was totally righteous. And he was the true king. And yet through that horror, that greatest evil, you accomplished the greatest good. For through that horror, Christ accomplished our salvation. Christ defeated sin, Satan, and death. And that's why we can have confidence today and forever. That as people who have been purchased by his blood, we belong to you. And all things are ours because we belong to Christ. He is our treasure and our great reward. But Father, forgive us for so often we forget. We forget the wonder of what it means to belong to you. And we act as if we own ourselves. And so we dishonor you by making broken cisterns that hold no water. Oh Lord, we pray, ask your people, help us always to remember your unfailing love, your unfailing commitment to us, so that we may rejoice in belonging to you so that we may live for you as people who are gripped by your unfailing love. This is pray in Jesus' name and for his sake.
Amen.